What is going on, everybody? Welcome into the Highlight, a business podcast for all the business people. It's only for serious people. And today I have a super serious guest on. Uh, we're going to share the highlight today with David Block, the founder of Prevenix. And uh, Prevenix is a fascinating brand we've worked with at Highbeam for uh, a little over a year now. And the story's crazy, and I'm super excited to have David on the show. Uh, David, I-, I could talk about you all day, man, but I'd love you to take two minutes and just sort of explain to everybody who you are, and then we'll we'll jump into it, man. Welcome awesome. to the show. Thanks, Chandler. Yeah, great to be here. Uh, this is fun. This will be fun. So yeah, I, uh, I'm in many things, I guess. I'm a husband. I'm a father. Um, probably my favorite title is dad. I think uh, I have two, two kids, a kindergartner and a one-year-old who, by the way, He's on a six-day streak of sleeping the night after not sleeping for about a year. So we are. Let's go. I, I'm in good shape for this podcast today. Are um, they doing the? Uh, are they doing the the back to school uh, uh, colds and things? Are they bringing everything back with so them? So my to kindergartner, the house? yeah, the kindergartner. It seems like every week this season, especially, is just there's something coming back: a cough, yep. a sniffle, uh, and yep. it's. I've been getting texts. So because I run a supplement company, like I get texts all the time about, Hey, what should I be taking? Or what should my kids be taking? And I am getting like a, a high frequency of messages of like, my kids are getting sick all the time. So I think it's like a nationwide thing going on. But, uh, yeah. So grew up in Southern California, uh, went to UCLA scholarship athlete there, which was fun and, uh, ended up moving to New York city. So big city, big city. And then uh, we now are in the Midwest, like Indianapolis. We relocated the company and personally and love it out here and just uh, just getting into winter. So let maybe check check back in with me uh, in a yeah. few months on that one. But it's awesome think, out here. We're I think the it. indie winters are a little bit lighter uh, than the New Jersey winters. I, I, if I had to take a guess, that would be my assumption. But I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I'm not sure. Might be a little colder or less snow. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Dress warm. Mm. It's all good. So the, you said you went to school for, um, you, you played a sport at UCLA. What, what sport was that? Yeah. So water polo is, uh, I got oh, recruited, cool. got a scholarship, uh, to play at UCLA and yeah, played a little bit, had some trips internationally representing team USA, which was, was also fun. That was like basically oh, cool. my life when I was in high yeah. school and, and kind of getting out of high school and, uh, but you realize water polo is not going to pay the bills at some point. So you kind of, you kind of transition. Well, we just need to do a better job marketing that sport. We got to make it the next. Uh, I don't know. That's that's purple. a Herculean effort. That's a Herculean effort. <laughs> I the camera work. I mean, not to digress here, but too much. But like the camera work for going underwater is just. I don't even know how you would get that on ESPN. I would imagine that's pretty tough. Uh, yeah. So so yep. so like we mentioned, you're the the founder of Prevenix, and I would love for you to just sort of tell us how in the world you went from water polo superstar on the West Coast to to founding. Uh, owner of a of a supplement company um, on the East Coast. What what happened in there that made you want to launch that thing? Yeah, yeah. So lots, lots happened. So, why? Well, so I think first high level. Let me tell you what what Prevenix is, and then I'll back into how we got there because I think they it, it'll it'll make more sense. So, at at the highest level, we make premium, clinically effective nutritional supplements that promote longevity, performance, and everyday health, and we donate vitamins to malnourished kids. Uh, through our Get Health, Give Health program that started not when we launched the company. There's kind of a cool story around how that got started. But where I started my career, I was a research analyst covering the nutritional supplement industry. And so for many years, my job was to read clinical studies on nutritional supplements, tour supplement manufacturing facilities, meet with executives of supplement companies, meet with investors, uh, learn about the physiology of what different nutrients do at a, at a cellular level. And 
look at sourcing issues. I basically became an expert in all things nutritional supplements. No ambition to ever start a supplement company. But as I was learning about the industry, I mean, I think in for my analyst days, there were two things that really jumped out. Uh, number one was there was all this proper peer-reviewed clinical research that supported taking advanced levels of certain vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, omegas, probiotics, and kind of the correlation between that and like creating health and health outcomes. And that was surprising to be Chandler because I was like, I actually was had a very negative bias against supplements. Like I don't actually know where that really? came from, but huh. I never, as an athlete, took supplements. I thought it was a waste of money. I thought, and then I'm reading all this this research and I'm like, man, if I knew this info, like number one, why have I never learned this? Because this seems pretty important, like fundamentally for health. And number two, like had I known this, what could that have done to my athletic career? But then it was like number three, now I do know this. So like this is going to be an important part of my long-term, you know, longevity strategy. And I'm crazy. I have like goals of breaking world records as an 80-year-old. And I'm like a long-term thinking guy. And uh, so it's like, all right, cool. This is going to help me with all that stuff. Um, so that was jump out number one. Number two was, you know, in getting to know the industry really intimately, you realized, or I realized pretty quickly, it's like, it's technically regulated, but not really. Uh, it's more of like a self-policing standard, which then opens itself up to many abuses and crazy things. And we can, we can yeah. get into some of those stories, but it's really, it's predatory and exploitative. Like the industry is super predatory and mm -hmm. banks on the fact that consumers are not going to have any background in nutritional science. And so if a consumer does not have a background in nutritional science, they literally have a 0% chance of understanding what ingredients are going to benefit them, what products are going to benefit them. And it just drove me crazy. I was like, man, done right. You can actually create health in other people's lives. Unfortunately, it's like not done right. And so um, I think it just, those kind of two things nod away at me. And there's a, I mean, there's a bigger story. We can certainly unpack it, but like to keep it briefer than, than long winded is yeah. I think eventually I was just like, man, rather than complain about this, let's do something about it. Like I know we can make best in class products and, um, but it was like, if we're going to do it, it's only worth doing it if it's just excellent. And we're kind of creating a new standard for how supplements should be manufactured, what consumers should demand. I kind of looked at myself as I'm consumer number one. I really believe in this stuff, given that, that background I had. And so what should I demand as a consumer? And so it started with like, well, if there's no regulation, like, why don't we manufacture this stuff and kind of look to the pharmaceutical industry, which is highly regulated, at least on the manufacturing side. And like, well, it makes sense to follow those same protocols of like testing every little step in the process, ingredients in the door, production run testing, finished product testing. And so anyway, what led me to start it was the, the, um, just my background as an analyst and just this desire to like do it right. So we could create health for people and actually make products that do what they're supposed to do. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the perfect blend of that analytical background and the high performer goal driven background as well with the, the athletics, uh, in college. I mean, there's, it's funny to me that I didn't realize you were a, uh, a supplement doubter, uh, back in the day and that, that you switched, you switched over to a believer. That's fascinating. I didn't, I, I think I didn't know that about you. Uh, so, so over is Prevenex is it's just over 10 years old. Is that right? So we'll be 10 in April. So 10 in April. Okay. R rapidly approaching 10 years. Yeah. It, it goes quick. What's, it what's been, 
What what do you think about when you think back ten years ago and you guys when you started it and, and you think about today? Like, what are some things that stand out for you that maybe you maybe they're different? Maybe it's not what you expected, or maybe it was a pleasant surprise. Yeah, from where we are now versus where we were back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so listen, like any company. Well, I don't know if it's any company, but like any entrepreneurial venture, you are failing as fast as you can to figure out what's going to work. And so the, the vision day one for Prevenex, and maybe this could be the most surprising thing still is we just had a vision of like, Hey, healthcare is broken. We need to change healthcare and prevention is really where things have to go. At least in the United States. I mean, the trends are definitely not our friend and, uh, they can't keep going the same way or you're going to bankrupt the whole system. So my thought was, listen, I mean, there's all this clinical data and, I know every company in the industry, like I know the whole landscape, like why don't we bring medical professionals, clinically proven prevention programs, weight loss, supplementation, and integrate it into traditional medicine. So that was like, I thought like, man, that's a good idea. And I don't see anyone really doing that and doing it well. Um, So kind of that was Prevenex day one. And so I, I think it's something that's surprising is still to this day, and maybe it's not surprising because like doctors don't really get nutritional training in medical school. Um, but it's just, man, how, how this stuff just isn't integrated into some core pieces of, of the healthcare process. Um, I think part of it is it's just, again, it's predatory and like consumers are super confused and practitioners yeah. are super confused. Like, what do I look at? What do I do? And but anyway, we had to pivot. We're a totally different business. We would have gone out of business just sticking with healthcare professionals, but it's still surprising that there just hasn't been more traction made there. Yeah, it's crazy to me that that hasn't changed because I, I've seen it online. I mean, with, I mean, YouTube came around in what, 06 is when it launched. And now it's, you know, almost 15 years later. So it would have been a little bit newer than when you guys launched um, Prevenix. But I mean, that, that platform has really sort of leveled the playing field from a information standpoint. All of a sudden, information is everywhere for everyone. But I think back to what we talked about a minute ago, when you have a supplement industry that's so unregulated and, you know, I saw this study the other day that Amazon, like people ordered the top supplements off of Amazon. I got to find this and send this to you, actually. It's like they they ordered the top supplements off of Amazon and then they tested them and then they found that like at a staggering amount, which is not going to come to any shock to you, they, they had none of the ingredients in them that they actually listed as ingredients that they were supposed to be selling, which is which is terrifying to me as a consumer because I'm not in the space. I'm a marketer. And so I'm even worse about it because I'm like, man, you look at some of these big supplement brands and you're like, well, you guys have a really good brand and maybe the guy or the girl that's leading the company or the influencers they're using are, are they look healthy. And so like, maybe I should trust them. But it's like, man, am I going to have to invest in my own clinical testing for every supplement I order? I mean, it sounds like I probably should on some level. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, listen, it's super expensive to do, but I think that's where a Prevenex makes a lot of sense. Cause like our whole thing is let's just like integrity at the core of like products and testing and making our data available and just almost designing and solving the problem that you're, you're having. So in Amazon, let me give you another Amazon. I don't even know if I'm supposed to say this or not, but we'll go for it is, you know, we, so we sell through Amazon. We've kind of just have our products up there. We've never focused on it, but we just reach new customers because it's a massive platform. We get an email every year going into the kind of summer months that say like, if you have any inventory that is 
sensitive at 140 degrees, it needs to be removed from the warehouse. And so all of a sudden, any food product, any supplement product, um, like if you think of omega, like fish oils that have soft gel coating, I mean, we don't actually fulfill by Amazon because of that reason, because we have no control over the warehouse. Like our mm. facility is temperature controlled. We do fulfilled by merchant. But all of a sudden now you're, you're looking at supplements on Amazon and it's the summer months. And if these things are in the hundred degrees and some humidity, I mean, you are getting massive degradation of product and nutrient availability and, but you would never know. You just wouldn't know that this, the product will look the same, but you're just, it's a totally compromised product. So there, there's all sorts of issues like this that consumers just have no clue about. Um, cause you know, it's just not, not in their, in their line of sight. Yeah. It's, I mean, integrity is what I'm hearing. Like integrity is a big component of what's going to make any business owner out there successful. Like if, if, if you don't have a core value that says what we say has to matter and it has to actually do what we said it was going to do. I mean, I think about the example of, you know, I literally just had a conversation with somebody within the last week where they wanted to buy um, services from us for marketing. And after the, after the call, I just, in my gut, I knew it was too early and it wasn't a good fit for them. And, and that they'd probably work with us for 90 days and, you know, we'd make some money off of that and that'd be great. But after 90 days, they would churn because their company wasn't at a stage yet where they were ready for the type of advertising services that we offer. And, you know, it was, there was a moment where you kind of have to look in the mirror and you have to go like, all right, you know, and it doesn't take that long, luckily, but you do have to look and you have to go, okay, you know, we have agreed that integrity matters for our company. And so we're going to do what's best for our consumers, even though they're, we're business to business and you guys are business to consumer. Like it has to be what's best for them because in the long run, that's really what matters. I mean, you can't, you just can't build a business, especially today with the internet and the way, the way that reputation can be torn down in a matter of seconds. Like, I mean, cancel culture is a whole nother thing, but like, I mean, it's still there. Like you can be reviewed and your reviews can go badly and then nobody buys from you again. I mean, integrity has to be at the core of what you do. And, and I know that about you guys, but like, why does integrity matter so much for you all? Is it because the industry is so, um, ripe with, with fraud essentially, or is it that you guys are, you truly want people to live longer, better, healthier lives? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, well, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. First of all, kudos to you for you know, looking yourself in the mirror and saying, Hey, what's best for the client isn't working with us. I can tell you when we were early on in Prevenex, some battle wounds or agencies that we partnered with that we spent a lot of money where they were, it just was, you know, it's just a learning lesson, but yeah. gosh, there were some of those. So that's great to hear. Yeah. I think for us, I mean, well, I think fundamentally it's like personally, just a personal philosophy of life is like, look, I orient around, um, I identify as a Christian. I think like the serving others first and loving your neighbor as yourself. Like how do you actually walk that out? And that informs a lot of what we do at Prevenex too. I mean, it's like yeah. we are in business to create health for other people. And that is fundamentally why we exist. Like we're wasting our time and everyone else's time if we're not doing that. And so I think that brings with it a high level of like, how do we do this with excellence at the highest possible standard to create the highest, you know, the, the most flourishing and health that we can. And it starts with, yeah, it's like 
Well, at least philosophically, that's kind of where it comes from, right? And then all the outpouring of like manufacturing excellence and sourcing the highest quality ingredients. And I mean, even examples, like we have a product that is a killer product that we cannot source one of the main active ingredients. And we could certainly like dummy it down and put in a second tier ingredient and continue to sell sell it and bring in revenue. But we're just not willing to do it because yeah. if it's not the best, like we're not interested. Like that just doesn't yeah. make sense to us. Well, it's the old saying, right? Like if you don't stand for something, you'll you'll fall for anything. That's that's really something that I, I think a lot about. You you have to be you have to be long-term thinking. You know, it's funny that that you're on today and, and I know how big health is for you, but if you're not thinking long-term with your health, um, it, it, there's not much you can do if you're on the, the operating table and you're having quadruple bypass surgery. Like it's a little late at that point to start thinking long-term for health. You're now in emergency mode. We got to do some triage. We got to fix things right now. And so if you're lucky enough to be listening to this or, or, running across David at some point and, and you are still early on and it's not actually gotten to that emergency level yet. You can always, you can always start today. What, what's the other saying? Like the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. And the second best time is, is right now. Totally. And you know, I, I think that, you know, we, we all make mistakes and you said it earlier too, is that you're going to be, you, you failed a lot over the last 10 years and you've pivoted a lot and you changed and you stay flexible and you, you're humble enough to admit when you when you have those moments of, of of fault, and you just move on, and it's it is what it is. But the the guys that don't, you you still have a a, a long term perspective on everything. I mean, all the way down to like who you are as a person, to how you guys run as a company. I mean, that's why you guys, you know, I think one of the reasons why you did the get health, give health thing, because you're literally now, and I'd love to talk about that program some, and, and maybe some social giving aspects inside of business. Cause we've not talked to anybody about that yet, but, but that's even long-term vision to me because you're looking ahead and saying, okay, if the world as a whole, if all human beings are actually the same and you know, we, we all are beneficial. We, we all benefit when everybody's healthier and you know, the number of kids that die every year from malnutrition is appalling. And so you're getting upstream of all of that. And you're saying, what can we do to make all that stuff happen? So Tell us how did that Get Health, Give Health program come around? And then I'd love to talk about social giving inside of companies. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, so day one, it, it was, you know, you got to be strategic about how you, how you kind of think about the market and go after the market. And so we pivoted direct to consumer. We were lucky enough because of the quality of the product to attract like some influential people um, who worked with pro athletes or athletes themselves or celebrity trainers and whatnot. And so we pivoted direct to consumer, started the company in 2013. I'd say like 2016, we were probably all in direct to consumer. And, but we had, a, it was a really hard journey. Um, but day one, it was like, all right, if, if you can write the, the whole kind of roadmap for Prevenex, what would we, where do we want to start? What's step two, what's step three? And one thing that was always in my mind was, man, if the vitamin industry itself is bad, the children's vitamin market is like the worst of the worst. It's like candy marketed as vitamins. And oh, so the Flintstone my, vitamins, right? That's what we oh all remember gosh. from growing it, up. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> so part of it was like, man, like you start, if you really want to create health, if you can start with children and develop great habits. And so mm -hmm. kind of to go back to what you were referencing of like reactive healthcare versus preventive healthcare, like you can if you can educate children and get them going at a young age, like that's going to hopefully set them up well. So 
But but uh, to your question, like in my mind, there was always we need to do a best in class children's multivitamin because that's that's an opportunity to create health in a meaningful way. So that was kind of always in the back of my mind. And and I, I had some experience. So I, I guess where this program really started, a couple things triggered it. Number one, um, my wife and I have done charity work and we love children. Like we have a huge heart for kids. My wife was a NICU nurse formerly and like taking care of critically sick babies and just being their advocate. And like we sponsor children and kind of, I, I think have a decent perspective on some of the challenges that like malnourished, impoverished children face. And we just have a heart for kids. So that's number one. Number two, our, uh, our daughter was born. So 2016, end of 2016, our first child uh, was born. And I'm, I just remember, like, it totally throws life upside down in some ways, like sleep patterns and adjusting. Yeah. And, but it's the most amazing thing ever, too. Like, I, it was just incredible. So I remember holding my daughter in my, like, one hand. I'm looking at this, this baby, and I'm just like, man, this is the most remarkable thing ever. Like, how amazing is this? But I, I kept having the thought as I was holding her of like, you know, there are parents of, of that have kids just like my daughter who are going to lose them to things like malnutrition. And in the back of my mind was like, if we got to a size where we could make a dent there, that'd be really cool. But we were kind of nowhere near that size in 2016. And so, um, but I just felt this like, man, we've got to do something. So I, I started, step one was just research was like, all right, let's unpack malnutrition. I always kind of thought of that as like a poverty, um, you know, like distended belly, like food issue, not a, not a nutrition issue, like a micronutrition issue. But I did the research very quickly. This is what I learned. And then I'll, I'll pivot it in is 17 at the time, 17,000 kids were dying every day from malnutrition around the world. But up to 45% of those kids, it wasn't a, a food or starvation issue. It was actually a vitamin deficiency issue, meaning if you get them vitamins, they live. If you don't, they die. It's like, okay, hold on a second. It's 2016. Really? I know the, the business of vitamins. I know how we relatively inexpensive it is to produce a very high-quality children's multivitamin. Like, this is crazy, and we can do something about this. And so... Honestly, like it, it was a moment in time where I was like, I'm not even sure I'm going to continue with this business. I don't even know if we're going to make it. Like we may go out of business. Like it just was kind of a leap of faith, but I felt- That was year really, three? That was year three. Year three, yeah. And I felt like, all right, you know what? We just have to do this. Like I felt a responsibility. I felt called to do it. And I walked into the office and I was like, all right, guys, here's what we're doing. We are going to make a best in class children's multivitamin and we're going to start donating it for every customer order. And so July of 2017, that program launched- and here we are, it's November of 2022, and we've donated 1.7 million Superbites to malnourished kids in like Haiti, Guatemala, El Salvador, Peru, Zambia, Syria. And one thing I want to say, because I think this is important, if we're going to pivot to like social impact within companies yeah. is for us, it's not, it's about serving these kids, right? And helping their flourishing. And so for us, like it's not just drop vitamins, then move to the next region to get marketing copy. It's okay. How do we partner with these kids? So they're getting our vitamins day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, so that we can really invest in their flourishing. And then as our company grows, which we've been fortunate that it just continues to grow, we can then find like, what's the next region where we can make the biggest impact, but really partner with these kids so that it's a long-term human flourishing. Like, and, and it goes back to our mission. Like everything stems from that, right? So we're, 
I should, let me just lay it out. Cause a lot I want to talk about is all going to stem from this, right? Like yeah. we believe that creating health changes lives. In fact, we know that creating health changes lives. We believe everyone deserves the opportunity to flourish and that at our healthiest, we can make our greatest impacts on our families, our communities and the world. And so it's just, how do we help these kids flourish and, um, long-term, not just like mm-hmm. drop, dump and dump and move, dump and move, dump and move, which I think a lot of programs do, unfortunately, which, which, you know, well, that was going to be my follow-up question is how do you walk the line between what's good and what, what some of the social giving aspects of things. And then also like the marketing of those aspects, like, do, do you just avoid the marketing of it at all? And you just do the giving on the side. I mean, I know we talk about it some, it's definitely like maybe one in every hundred social post we'll put out. Like it's definitely on the site as a way to, to promote it, but it's, it's not a, um, I wouldn't say it's like a daily thing that we put, or we don't really use it as a lever to like, like make people purchase your all's product, but we definitely make people aware that, Hey, you know, thanks for doing this and doing this for yourself, but also you're going to get it. Uh, you're going to help other people's lives improve across the world. And I, I don't know, I, I'm a, you know, Tom shoes was sort of the first, um, social entrepreneurship capitalist venture, you know, they, they, and that came from a good place. The guy went on a trip and, uh, you know, saw the kids didn't have shoes and then did the buy one, give one campaign. And that was, that was awesome. And I think that was rooted in a, a really clean, um, intention, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it felt like after that, and that, that may have been around the same time, like 15, it may have been a little earlier. I don't, I don't remember the exact dates, but, but it felt like everybody was doing the buy one, get one thing but they marketed it heavily. Like I remember you buy one pair of socks, they'd give one to somebody overseas. And then, I I mean, it was just, it was everything, anything you buy, it was like, buy a hat, give a hat. And I'm like, do people really need hats? Is that a, is that a thing that we're doing? I didn't know. I didn't know not having a hat was a leading cause of death and you know, wherever I, you know, I, so I, I just wonder, you know, you guys been doing this for you know, this specific type of branch of the company since 17, how do you walk that line? Like where, where do you stand on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think fundamentally at the start, it's just what is the right thing to do and do that thing. And so for us, it's like, we're going to just donate vitamins and yes, do we want to figure out how to integrate that into the the heart of Prevenex and who we are and why we exist? And yeah, for sure. Do we do a good job of that now? No. Um, so I, I think we have we have an opportunity to to be more on mission and tell that story better. But like we we partner with charities to distribute the the vitamins, and there are you know part of it is we want some some assets like pictures and stories, and because we think that matters, and we want to make sure we're we're helping these kids. But there's markets we're never going to see a picture, we're never going to see a video. There's just a need, and so we're like, well, let's go there because if there's a need. So yeah. the way we walk the line right now is we do a pretty not so good job of telling that side of the story. I think, you know, the marketing teams identified like, hey, there's an opportunity here, but from a, a, a rooted in the heart of why we do it, not in the let's pull on heartstrings to try to manufacture sales based mm-hmm. on the work we're doing with these kids. Like we'll, we'll, we'll never go there because I won't allow it to happen. And it's, it's, but it's, it's an interesting question of like, how do you, how do you toe that line? Yeah. And I what think, I'm hearing is intention, right? Like, yeah, that is, that's what, like, I was what is going. your core yep. driver is intention. Yeah, totally. It's just do the right thing. And that's what you need to focus on. And I think yeah. things work, it's work themselves out. Uh, if, if you're leading from that place. Yeah. I, I'm, 
so so this marketing company is is my second business. I did you have another business before Prevenix or was this your your first one? I know you like a little investment way. thing, but I wouldn't even call that a real business. Gotcha. Yeah, I well, I you know through that first one, and I, I'm sure it's the same for you, where you you end up meeting a lot of other people that are entrepreneurs or small business owners in that same you know one to ten million dollar revenue range, and we we sort of all end up around each other because like we all have the same problems and we can be like, Hey, you know, this is, you know, we're not like the McDonald's of the world or the big fortune 500 companies of the world. We have very similar problems. So, you know, being friends, it's a very lonely gig. Uh, I think being a small business owner sometimes, but I, I have found, um, through operating two totally different businesses. The first one was a restaurant, which is direct to consumer, similar to what you guys did, but it was in a local market. And then this one is a, a, uh, um, B2B, uh, brand. Like we market to, businesses and then we do their marketing for them. It's, it's very meta and weird. Uh, but, but we've also gotten to meet a lot more, uh, business owners like yourself and other people. And, and what I tend to find is that 80, 85% of businesses, the same, it doesn't matter what business you're in. And, um, there's, there's like 10, maybe more, maybe less core tenants that you have to sort of get right at an internal level. And, you know, integrity is something, that, especially on this podcast that has come up a lot in the last 20 or so episodes that we've done. Um, um, intention and intentionality and like, what is your actual heart and reasoning for doing anything inside of the organization, right? Like it's even if, uh, it, it, it can go all the way from what you guys are talking about now with like, okay, we're going to do this social charitable arm, right? And that's, that's a intentionally, we're trying to do the right thing. We can always get it right. Or we always going to message it right, whatever, but intentionally, we're trying and you can all, you can even take it to, you know, when you have employees on staff and stuff, it's like, Hey, I'm trying to be the best leader I can. I'm trying not to take advantage of you. I'm trying to help work-life balance and I'm trying to make the best thing for you possible. My intention is good. And I, I do think that where some people get into trouble and, you know, in the news recently, we saw the, the fall of the uh, crypto exchange. Um, what is it? FTX. FTX. Yep. FTX. Yeah. And so I don't know, uh, it's interesting. I don't know what their intention was. Cause you know, when you loan a sister company, $10 billion, and I, you know, that's a fathomable, unfathomable number for me, but it's, I don't know what the intention was with that. Like, I think the intention wasn't to make the best crypto exchange possible and help people with that new investment vehicle, whether your thoughts are on it. I, it felt like the intention was, I just want to do what's best for me and my friends and all the things. And like, it catches up to you. Now that's a massive scale and it's totally different than what we're doing, but it's like, intentionality and um, integrity are two big core tenets of business for me. Do you have anything else that you think about when you're like, Hey, like if I was to come to you and I was going to say, Hey, I want to start a new business, you know, business number three, cause I'm just a junkie. Like, what would you tell me? Like, what are some other core tenets of being a business owner that you've learned over the last decade? Yeah, gosh, I've learned so much, right? It's crazy. A decade. You, I couldn't pay any amount of money to learn what I've learned over the last yeah. 10 years. But, um, I want to actually, I'll answer that question, but I, I just something that strikes me is, you know, FTX may have had great intentions day one. They may have had the most noble, but as you grow and you scale and money becomes much the, the bigger numbers and like, it's possible to go off track. And so mm. I think fundamentally for, for us, at least it's like really knowing our mission and our place and only executing out of that place. And so um, we veered left, we veered right, but like we've learned to like stay on mission and really understand what that is. But I, I think excellence, you know, we, we have our core values and um, 
serve others first is number one, but like excellence, we, we call it fight for excellence because I think it's actually a fight because it is easy to give a B plus effort and it is, it's easy to, you know, uh, take a different, like a shorter path or, but like really fighting for that with the intention to serve because we're serving other people. Like we are, if that's so important, I think things I've learned like truisms are like, Hey, the highs are never as high as you think the lows are never as low as you think. And, uh, that's something I had to adapt to. And, um, I think grit, like I'll tell you a quick story, right? This we're, we're telling yeah. stories on this, this podcast. So there, I serve on a couple of different boards and, um, there's a woman who I, at the time was serving on two different boards with who started the largest private investment bank in the media sector as a woman, mm-hmm. like 30 years ago, she started it. So think about 30 years ago, the culture, New York city, woman different yeah. than today. Yeah. And you know, she is one of the, the best human beings I know. You, you, she has absolutely crushed it. So you, you, you know, you go, she's on park Avenue, New York city elevator goes to up to her living room. It's the whole floor of this park Avenue building. And oh my gosh, tremendous woman. Right. So I remember the day Prevenex turned five, I walked in to her, to the board, to whatever the board meeting was. And I said, uh, she said, Oh, how are you doing, David? I said, Oh, I'm doing great. We just turned five year old, five years old today. And without skipping a beat, she said, Oh, congratulations, David. Only five more years till you make it. And I was like, <laughs> what? I'm like, this is going to take 10 years. This is crazy. I haven't made any money in like four years. This is so yeah. hard. And, um, that was just an interesting perspective. But then at her Christmas party, she throws these epic Christmas parties. We're by the kind of like the, the punch bowl, let's call it. And another entrepreneur buddy of mine, we were talking about like, what's kind of the number one recipe for success as an entrepreneur. And and he gave kind of his answer. I gave a shorter answer. And then Wilma walked right up. We're like, Wilma, we need, we want to ask you this question. She's like, guys, this is easy. It's one word. She's like grit. You're like, yeah, that's true. So just that ability, but, but smartly, right. Cause like, you don't want to just keep going and going and going, but like there is a grit and tenacity that's needed to just endure the, the, what's inevitably going to be the ups and downs, the challenges, the setbacks, the failures. Um, there's a lot of wounds that, that the entrepreneurial journey can, can give you. Um, so I don't know. I mean, yeah, grit, writing it out, uh, but being smart, right. I love grit. I I'll tell you why, because I, so when I was in the air force, I was in contracting, which is like the business side of the military, right? Everything in the military now is contracted out fun spoiler alert for you that pay taxes in the U S uh, everything is privatized. And so people like me represent the air force and other branches and we go out and find people. And so that's what sort of got me into business. Well, during this time I had a four year contract and, and I don't know about you. I'm not very patient. A lot of times I like get an idea and it's now time to ship the idea five seconds later. And that's why I like love having a business partner now like Austin, because he's a great filter for some things. And then God bless my wife's heart. Like she, is constantly filtering out crap that I'm coming up with. And uh, during that four-year run when I was in the Air Force and I was stuck because you you literally can't leave or they'll send you to jail, like military jail, which is a whole other thing. And so I had to stay. So I started prepping and, and I started studying because I knew I wanted to do something in small business and, and try to start my own thing. And uh, so I'm reading all these books and books are like great, but they're very hyper um, edited. 
and they're they're very concentrated from a timeline standpoint. So you may read a book that took somebody 30 years to condense down, right? 30 years worth of experience to get down to 200 pages or whatever it is. And I didn't, I think I was too young. I was in my early twenties at the time. I didn't really understand time or anything like that. And so, and then I'd also at the same time started watching shows like Shark Tank and and any other business show they'd put on TV because I just couldn't get enough of that information because I was, I was really in that phase. And, and those shows and those books are edited in a way to where the lows seem way lower and the highs seem way higher um, or more frequent, I think. I don't, I don't think they talk a lot about the day-to-day mundaneness that is running a business sometimes because there's always a new challenge and there's always something else. But it's a lot of the time, it's just the same thing. Like, hey, this morning I'm prospecting. I'm looking for new clients. This afternoon I'm talking to employees. This, I mean, it's just like, it's like learning how to do the same things over and over and over again. And, and just when you do have those bigger moments and big challenges that come up, um, you know, for us, it's like, you know, Facebook wants to crash itself. Like they want to spend all this money building a stupid metaverse and blow up the best marketing tool that's ever invented, uh, and been invented. And instead they want to build the metaverse. And now my company is like downstream of that, trying to figure out like, okay, well, I guess we're going to figure out how to run ads on TikTok because Facebook's not going to exist in 24 months if they keep doing the crap they're doing. So, you know, it's, it's, that is some grit to be like, Hey, are we going to be willing to change, um, as a company and to pivot towards this new thing? I remember when I was running the barbecue restaurant, you know, it's a protein heavy thing, right? We had brisket, we had pulled pork, we have chicken, we had all this stuff. And this was 2014 to our run ended in 2020. And, um, you know, it, 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 it's fascinating to me that during that time it went from people are really cool with eating barbecue and it was fine to all of a sudden it was a lot more questions about, well, where are you guys sourcing your meat from? And, and do you guys have healthier options on the menu? And do you, and these are questions that we didn't have to deal with in 14, but all of a sudden by the time 2017 rolled around, it was like, well, I guess we should find answers for this. And you, you do have to pivot and you do have to have grit to just keeping, keep on. I, I think the five-year mark is interesting for me. I think the SBA has a lot of data out there that says five years in business is sort of the make or break for a lot of startups specifically, uh, and not startups that go get a bunch of venture-backed capital like per se, but like your mom and pop shop, like you're going to open a business, a lawn care business or, or whatever locally. Five years is kind of what you got to do. Um, 10 years for sure. Yeah, no doubt. But like five years is like most businesses that start have closed after five years. Um, cash flow is a big reason why. And it takes you about five years. Like you just said, like, like we're not profitable yet. And it's been four years. Like, what the hell are we doing? Like we started a business to make a profit and it takes you five years of just grinding it out and staying alive and just committing to not stopping to actually get past that hurdle. So I'm, I'm proud of you for making it the last, uh, five years to 10 years. I'm, our company is one year old, so I'm, I'm nine years behind you, but we'll, we'll, we'll catch up one foot in front of the other. Yeah. I mean, I, so I think there's one thing to just kind of stay in the game. And then there's another thing to actually start to flourish. Mm-hmm. And I think her point was like, you, you know, for 10 years, you're kind of there. Like if mm-hmm. you, if you're smart enough and just can keep walking and you know, you kind of get there, which yeah. funny enough, I mean, we're going to be 10, like that feels right. She was right yeah. on the money. Yeah. I remember very specifically. So year five, we crossed a million dollars in revenue. And I finally had like a layer of leadership below me that was handling a lot of the day-to-day chaos and all the things. And, and other people were starting to be responsible for things that I was, and I could go do what I actually wanted to do. And like some of the dreams and vision I had for my business, it took every bit of five years to figure that out. Um, 
And I will tell you that if you've started your first business and closed it, uh, the second one is much easier because you don't have to learn all those stupid lessons all over again. Like, uh, so there, maybe there's some data there that the second time around, if you're smart enough or not, just not dumb enough to make the same mistakes twice, then, then it works out. I don't and know. Let me go back to your last question too, because it just, I think something I would tell people and we did this is like bootstrap the business early. Cause like, had we gotten a bunch of money, I would have blown it on such wasteful yeah. things because I just wouldn't have known, you know, you don't know what you don't know. It's all theory. Yeah. And man, like I'm so grateful, even as hard as it was to bootstrap and just sling along, like we, we would have, I'm almost positive gone out of business had we had a bunch of capital and started to put it to work. And yeah, it's, we, we could do that now very well, but we couldn't have done that well year one, two, three. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've got a story for you. I mean, the, the first company I had was the barbecue restaurant. We started in a tent with five grand. So we bootstrapped it. And then our second location wasn't the tent. It was a gas station on the side of the road next to a liquor store, next to an hourly motel. You know, it was great. Uh, and then our third location was finally the location that we went over a million dollars in, but it took, you know, four years to get there. And we saved up a little bit of money and a little bit of money. And we, we finally borrowed a little bit of money to open that third one. But that was four years in and and we had been testing and changing the menu probably 50 times to get to that point and like like had we borrowed like i had a lot of there was a lot of people that i knew that got a home equity line of credit on their house and opened a restaurant for three four hundred thousand dollars because that's about what it would take to open a single unit white box build out in lexington kentucky at the time and, you know, two years later, they're gone and then their house is gone and, and all the things. And, and that ended up even happening to us because we we had done so well for the first five years. And then we sort of got impatient. And I think patience and just playing the long game. I love the book um, Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. I don't know if you've had a chance to read that yet. I but love Simon Sinek. Awesome. He's great. Everything he does yeah. is amazing. And uh, yeah, I wish I had known about the Infinite Game before uh, I made this bad decision. But I just, I just got in a hurry. And then we ended up trying to open this. Uh, it was called Nash's Southern Table and Bar. And it went from being like a quick service barbecue restaurant where you'd come up to the counter and order and then go sit down, which is like basically one step above fast food, to Nash's was a, we had 20 servers on at any time. You know, it was a 250 seat restaurant. You know, it was 5,000 square feet and it was lunch and dinner and there was appetizers and entrees and desserts and there was a full bar. And like, you know, it's just a, it's like you're athletic and you can play baseball and then, or water polo. And then all of a sudden I ask you to go run track. I mean, you can probably do better than the average person at it, but you're not even close to the world-class performer that people that focus on track is. And had we gone back and bootstrapped that next restaurant concept, we would have still been in business and everything would have worked out fine. But instead we borrowed way more money that time. And it like four or five months later was gone. And that's, uh, you know, so I've lived both sides of that. Mm. And I will tell you that David is hundred percent right. Bootstrap it, even though it sucks in the beginning, it's going to suck in the beginning. You're going to hate it. Like there's no way around it. You're going to hate bootstrapping you. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to want it to go faster. You're going to want to hit success. And then, you know, if you can just have grit and patience, eventually when you get to 10 years in business, you'd make it. <laughs> yeah. And part of it is just, it's just figuring out how do I stay in the game? And, and when you bring in capital and debt, that just, it, 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 it you know, it just makes, there's more risk and, and less opportunity to, you know, yeah. just less margin for error. And it's all about how do I stay in the game? Keep it going, learn as fast as I can. And, um, yeah, yeah man. I love that. Well, the, the question we ask everybody on the show before we get out of here is 
I call it the 10 X question. So if I could 10 X your budget tomorrow, what would you, what opportunities are you most excited about that you're just waiting on money to make happen? Yeah. Oh gosh. That would be cool if you could do that Chandler. Yeah. Um, hey, if I win this, uh, if I ever get that lottery that keeps going over a billion dollars, like oh I'll make my it happen. Gosh. Yeah, no, I think for us, like where we're at now. So like the other side of bootstrapping is we know exactly what to do to drive this thing. And so if we had just yeah. unlimited budget or 10 X budget, a chunk of that would be going into podcasts. We, we have seen great returns on podcast marketing. Um, yeah. You know, part of it is like we leverage um, trust points that reach our, our target consumer to, and, and we just have had success almost since day one doing that. So like podcast, we would scale that. We would probably go a lot deeper into paid influencer um, the right, the right influencer. And then I think, you know, something that we, we, we'd probably strategically partner with the agency on a couple of things like ambassador program, which we know can grow and scale. It's just, you can only focus on so many things, right? We're a big yeah. essentialism, like focus on the most important thing and drive that, but it'd be a few key marketing, um, pieces and, and, uh, yeah, podcast paid influencer ambassador and some agency support on some of the other yeah. stuff as well. I love the leverage trust point thing because I think whether you're in a direct to consumer business or a, um, a business to business model, I think it's the same because people are at the core of both of those operations, whether it's one person or a, a big organization, there's a lot to be gained from leveraging similar trust points. So if, if, if you have a, like a local barbecue restaurant, for instance, like we would even leverage, um, the local barber down the street and we would find a way to collaborate with them. And, and then, you know, not just like a boring put gift cards out or something like that, but we would try to put an event on with them and like, because they had the same customers we did. And so you're just finding a way to leverage those trust points. I, I like that a lot. And you can, uh, you, you can shortcut a lot of things and make customer acquisition costs much cheaper. If you just borrow somebody else's trust. I, I like that. That's, that's good advice, David. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show, man. Is there uh, anything else you want to get off your chest before we let you get out of here? No, this is great. Yeah. You obviously are doing great work and appreciate the opportunity to have this chat. This was fun. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you. We love having you as a client and a friend now. It's, it's been fun. I, I, we get to have these conversations all the time. So it's cool to actually, you know, bring it to the world and let them, uh, let them see what we yammer about, uh, when we're on the phone together. So we'll link up David's information and, uh, give some more information about Prevenex and how you guys can support them. And, um, yeah, the get health, give health program is one of my favorite things that we do, um, at Heidi marketing with a client. It's cool. It's cool to support that. So David, appreciate you, man. We appreciate everybody listening. We will see you guys next week.